1863, nine-year-old George Washington Fields escaped from the plantation where he'd been enslaved. So did his mother, brother, and sisters. This whole family liberated themselves during the Civil War. And so I was in from that point forward as soon as I heard that story. Today on Inside Appalachia, a look into the often overlooked stories of black Americans during and after the Civil War and how state lawmakers are trying to keep that history out of the classroom. It's a, the same playbook that was used at the federal level is now being used at the state level. And it's guided by sort of this misguided notion that acknowledging race at all is prohibited by the Constitution. Also, how Germany teaches its difficult history, including the Holocaust. Perhaps feeling uncomfortable is the basis for education. Because when you feel uncomfortable, you, you, you know personally about the problem, and then you can go forward. That's today on Inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. You know, growing up in the mountains, I can remember learning about the Civil War and about the Reconstruction years that followed, and even some about the Civil Rights Movement. You know what I never learned until just five years ago? That four black coal miners were lynched in my hometown in 1891. I was stunned when I found out. So should that have been part of my public school education? That's what we're talking about today, how schools should or shouldn't teach about race, especially the really uncomfortable parts, like the history of slavery or lynchings. State lawmakers across Appalachia are arguing over that very question. You may have heard about critical race theory. It's a lens for looking at how race is systemically built into legal and other institutions. But it's become a buzzword that's applied to a broad range of topics. And just how broad depends on who you're talking to. We begin with some of the stories that get overlooked, like from the years after the Civil War. There's a podcast by VPM and Molten Heart that we've been listening to. It's called Seizing Freedom, and its first season includes stories of black Americans who were enslaved in the South. When the Civil War broke out, their lives changed radically. As the Confederacy started to fall, Union soldiers came in to occupy parts of the South which gave enslaved people some ideas about a way to escape. Historian Kadata Williams is the host of the podcast. She spoke with our producer, Roxy Todd. Dr. Kadata Williams, thanks for coming on our show to talk about your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Several of your episodes in season one follow the story of a young boy in Virginia named George Washington Fields. Can you talk a little bit about him? George Washington Fields and his family had been enslaved on a plantation in Hanover, Virginia. In 1863, he's nine years old, almost 10, when his mother decides to take advantage of all of the chaos that the Civil War had caused. And she decided to lead her family off the plantation. And they make this daring escape, and they make their way to this Union camp, where they are not turned away, they are, rece- they are well-received. And so this whole family liberated themselves during the Civil War. And it was this kind of thrilling story of Black freedom fighting that fills the archives of the Civil War era. And so I was in from that point forward as soon as I heard that story. Yeah, let's play a little clip from that episode. This is a voice actor reading the words of George Washington Fields. 
And at this point, George and his family are hoping to reach an uncle who can help get them into Union territory. All that night, we wended our way through thorns and briars with our feet and hands torn and bleeding. Occasionally, we could hear what seemed to us to be a large snake darting through the leaves and dried grass. The whippoorwill and the large gray owl seemed delighted to accompany us from the start to the end of our journey. Eventually, they made it to their uncle's cabin. One by one, he ferried the family across the river in his makeshift canoe, right into Union territory. There, Mother stopped, and putting down her pot, she bade us sit down and not stir until she returned. And away she went towards the light and the bugle sound. In about an hour, she returned amid a drenching rain. She stooped down, picked up the pot, and bade us follow her. Away we went through the night, all weeds and grass, which shed its raindrops upon our bodies. I, being the shortest in the bunch, some of the weeds towered above my head, and whenever I touched against them, I was treated to a very copious shower bath. Soon we were at the top of the hill and could see not far away the Yankee campfires burning brightly. George and his family didn't know what to expect. They were refugees from slavery. Cold, wet, hungry. And they were about to emerge, unannounced, into a camp full of armed white men. They could be turned away. They could be captured and sent back as fugitive slaves. Or worse. But in this moment, they were free. And they were free together. For that they'd risk anything. And from there, George and his family face a number of obstacles. But in many ways, the fact that they weren't caught and sent back to their owners was a success. Can you talk a little bit about what his family represents to you as a historian of this period? Well, for me, the Fields family represents what I think is the very best of African-Americans freedom-taking and freedom-making during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Because of how poorly slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction are taught in K-12, a lot of people think that African Americans just sat waiting passively until the end of the war for white people to come free them out of the goodness of their hearts. And what we know is that if all enslaved people needed was goodwill and white support, that white Americans could have abolished slavery any time before the war. But that's not what happened. And so it's an incredible story. And I think the big takeaway from it is that African-Americans helped free themselves. They didn't do it alone, of course. And thinking about how this history is taught and, as you say, so much is left out, why do you think these stories are overlooked? I think that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of white Americans and a lot of white historians were committed to this white history of the war. You know, that Civil War story of the brothers in blue and gray. And that's the story they've told for more than 100 years. And it's the only story some historians think should be told. But there's no place in that story for a family like George Washington Fields's. And that's despite the fact that African-Americans like them are in the same archival and historical records of the Civil War as those white brothers are. 
And what we know is that it wasn't until recently that more and more historians started paying attention to the stories of African-Americans and others in the war. And so that erasure is problematic because enslaved Americans were at the heart of the conflict, because slavery was at the heart of the conflict. And it's also problematic because Black people were the brothers and sisters in blue, too. They were loyal to the Union cause. You've got men who are doing the military fighting, and you've got women who are doing a lot of the work for the Union forces. And African-Americans are also working as spies, scouts, and guides for um, the Union Army at the same time. And so that's the part of the story of the war that gets left out when you focus only on what white people are doing. It wasn't all good times, of course, for African-Americans. Several hundred thousand African-Americans lost their lives during the war um, and its aftermath. But a lot of that has to do with racist treatment and white violence. And as a Black woman, what has it been like to navigate this academic world when so many historians of this period are white men? So I was interested in African-Americans in the Civil War when I was in high school, and I wanted to learn more about it in college. And what I learned really quickly is that it was not appropriate, or my questions about African-Americans in the Civil War weren't welcomed in the U.S. history course or the seminar on the Civil War and Reconstruction. My classmates and my instructors, they made clear that that was not a place to ask questions about Black people, even in the context of the Civil War. But thankfully, while I was in college, there were all of these historians who were doing this research on the topic, and they started paving the way by digging into the records for stories of people like George Washington Fields. I just hadn't encountered them yet. But when I did, that made a world of difference. And so... What we see is that uh, historians have not turned back from that. And today there are hundreds of historians who are researching African Americans, Native Americans, women, and other people in the context of the war. And so what we see or the reality that we're dealing with is that Black people as subjects and as historians writing about this history are going to take up space in the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And we do that because history is an archives-based discipline. We don't write about our feelings. We don't spin tales. We have an archive. And Black people are in the archival records of the Civil War. And so are women, Native Americans, and so many more. And because this is an evidence-based archival research, and because there's obviously a market for Black Civil War history— People who are feeling some kind of way about the spotlight being placed on families like George Washington Fields um, are going to have to find a way to deal with their feelings about it. And in your mind, what is the biggest myth that we're often taught in school about the years right after the Civil War? I think the biggest myth is that African-Americans didn't do anything with freedom, that it was wasted on them. And that's the narrative of Reconstruction's so-called failure. And that's a lie because they really made the most of freedom. They reunited their families. They found work. They started their own businesses. They opened schools. They bought land. They did all of these things. Now, was that hard to achieve? Yes. But it was hard to achieve largely because white supremacists went out of their way to deny or rob them of everything they fought for. And so a lot of what African-Americans built during Reconstruction lasted for decades after 
Reconstruction was overthrown and abandoned. In Black spaces, at least, the memory of their work lasted for generations. And so this idea that Reconstruction failed is part of the lost cause narrative. It didn't fail. Confederates overthrew it, and the rest of the nation let them. What have you heard from listeners who've been listening to Seizing Freedom? Most of our listeners love having the stories brought to life by our amazing voice actors. Others, I think, are listening for stories that they hadn't heard, those of people like George Washington Fields or Joseph Miller, whose entire family died when they were expelled from Camp Nelson in Kentucky, or Spotswood Rice, who wrote this, you know, who wrote the series of letters to the woman who was still holding his uh, daughters in bondage. And he says to her, I am going to come with the Union forces to free my children, whether she likes it or not. And so we get a variety of responses from listeners. They love the narrative episodes, but they also feel informed by the interviews with our guests. And those are historians and artists and thinkers who bring these topics that we're covering in the show to the present day. And speaking of the present day, obviously in many states, politicians are debating how this period of our history should be taught in schools Do you have any thoughts about, you know, podcast as a genre or audio being taught in schools? Do you think it could be less controversial for teachers to have their students listen to a podcast like Seizing Freedom when, you know, books uh, could be banned or something like that? Honestly, I don't know, Um, especially because a show like ours does challenge that sort of white history, the what you know, it's a story like many good histories that makes people uncomfortable. And the discomfort is o- isn't only about what white people are feeling. People of other backgrounds, including African Americans, feel uncomfortable by the history too, because it goes against everything that they have been taught about the Civil War in Reconstruction in K through twelve. What many of my students, at least in college, reveal is You know, there is this sort of feeling of betrayal because they've been denied access to this history. And so they're really frustrated by it. And a show like ours is part of that history that a lot of people who are promoting these bans and are restricting teachers in the kind of materials they use and the histories they teach. I don't know that this show would necessarily escape a ban because it does get to the heart of... um, some uncomfortable truths about the Civil War and Reconstruction. Even while it's celebrating African-Americans' fight for freedom, it doesn't shy away from the things they're fighting against. Kadata Williams, thank you so much for coming on to Inside Appalachia and talking with us about your show, Seizing Freedom. And I love it. I love what you all have done. And I'm really excited for the episodes to come. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You can find a link on our website where you can listen to Seizing Freedom. New episodes are about the turn of the 20th century and Black Americans' continuing pursuit of freedom. But the rise of Jim Crow quashes many of their newly won rights. Head over to wvpublic.org to hear more. At least nine states have already banned teachers for bringing up certain topics about race in the classroom. Others have state-level action around the issue, 
and even more have legislation in the works. But the U.S. isn't the only country with an unsettling history to deal with. In Germany, teachers are mandated to include lessons about one of their nation's darkest chapters, the Holocaust. WFPL arts and culture reporter Stephanie Wolf traveled to Germany to explore how the Holocaust is covered in schools there. She produced an audio documentary about what she saw in Germany. She teamed up with her station's education reporter, Jess Clark, to compare how teachers and lawmakers in Kentucky are debating how our own uncomfortable history is taught. Their audio documentary is called A Critical Moment. Here's Wolf and Clark with episode one. A note to listeners. This piece contains disturbing descriptions of a Nazi concentration camp. On a rainy day in September, most of the visitors at the memorial site of Dachau are students. This is a former Nazi concentration camp in the southern German state of Bavaria. The kids are high school age, about 14 or 15. And one group of students has gathered outside the front entrance, an iron gate. They stand in a sort of semicircle around a woman with curly gray hair pulled up into a loose ponytail. She introduces herself. So, ganz kurz stelle ich mich vor. Frederik Hegele ist mein Name. Frederik Hegele is today's tour guide. She asks a student what the words say that are cast into the gate's door. Was ist der Schrift auf das Tor? Arbeit macht frei. Genau. The student responds, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. This was Nazi propaganda. Because, of course... No one who was imprisoned here was free. During World War II, some 40,000 people died here at Dachau. Jews, Romani people, Czechs, queer people, Jehovah's Witnesses, political prisoners, and many others the Nazis saw as a threat. And young people living in Germany today learn the full ugliness of the events that unfolded in Dachau and other camps like it in the 1930s and 40s. That's because Holocaust curriculum is mandatory. This is a critical moment, a look at how two countries teach about the atrocities in their past. From WFPL News, I'm Jess Clark, education reporter, and I've been looking into the backlash in Kentucky against school curriculum that addresses systemic racism, something conservatives refer to as critical race theory. And I'm Stephanie Wolf, arts and culture reporter. I've been reporting on how Germany teaches about the Holocaust. In the politically conservative region of Bavaria, older students must visit a former concentration camp. It's a required part of public education. Historian Maximilian Lutkins works in the education department at Dachau. He says they recommend that teachers prepare students for what they'll see, because it's difficult material. As we talk, groups of students and some tourists pass by on the gravel. Something very important for the history of this time is that Dachau was the first big concentration camp It was built up in 1933, and the SS tried to build all other concentration camps later on, like Dachau. Through the gates, we step into an open space. I notice a watchtower across the complex, then another watchtower, and another. There are deep ditches around the edges of the camp, and a fence that was electrified. Everything's set up to keep people from escaping this place. I was always wondering why was something like this possible in Germany, yeah? Why was it possible to build up camps like Dachau? Lutgen says he would try to talk to his grandparents about World War II. They were alive and living in Germany during that time. And as a teenager, 
Lutkins wanted to know what role they played during the war. He says they would sometimes be angry when he'd bring it up. Because they said to me, OK, you, you didn't live there. Uh, what can you say about that time? We were in a young age during that time. We were teenagers. What could we do against this regime? And I said, yes, I, I, I don't say that that was your fault that Hitler went to power and so on and built up concentration camps. But um, it was a fault from the um, whole society in Germany, yeah? because uh, not many people were in the resistance and most of the people were silenced. You didn't have to be a camp guard, a soldier or an officer to have been responsible for the Holocaust. It was everyday people who either supported Hitler's campaign or turned a blind eye when their neighbors were sent away. Lutgen says that's why Holocaust curriculum is so important. It teaches kids not to be complicit or complacent. So if something horrific starts to brew again, they will say, this is not okay. The goal isn't to make kids feel guilty for the past, he says. It's to help them understand their role and what happens going forward. We are guilty for the future. We we are guilty that something like this will never happen. Every one of us, white people, um, Turkish, German people, black people, Jews, etc. Everyone, because we live here in our society and in Germany and we have to... To, to fight against racism and anti-Semitism. So we, we are not um, guilty for, for the past, but for the future. In Germany, it's widely accepted that the past can't be left behind, and it has to be discussed in schools. But in the United States, that's not a given. Here's Jess Clark. I've been looking into a tense debate happening here in Kentucky about how much to dwell on the atrocities of our country's history— the genocide of Native people, slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, and whether the through-line of systemic racism that marks our nation's past and present should be discussed in the classroom. These discussions are uncomfortable, and some state lawmakers want to legislate that discomfort out of the classroom with bills they say will ban something called critical race theory. We will continue uh, with our agenda with uh, BR 69, an act relating to prohibited instruction. In July of 2021, a group of state lawmakers met in a committee room in Frankfurt. At a table below the dais, Republican Representative Matt Lockett of Nicholasville took the mic. I want to speak on a bill that I believe is one of the most vital pieces of of legislation that we will address when we convene in session 2022. The bill would prevent teachers from promoting or even discussing a number of ideas. Among them, the idea that students should feel guilt or responsibility for past decisions made by members of their own racial group. Wadi Republican Representative Jennifer Henson Decker sat beside Lockett. She's co-sponsoring the bill. Together, we must find a way of curbing the skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression among our young people in the Commonwealth instead of classifying them by race and then teaching them to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress due to the immutable characteristics of their skin. Decker says she's worried that all this talk about systemic racism is making kids feel bad and that teaching kids about it is divisive and harmful to progress. But in Germany, education officials say talking about the country's history of anti-Semitism is key to progress. Here's Stephanie Wolf. We catch up with her as she and the student tour past the barracks at Dachau. The long and narrow buildings are reconstructions of the originals. It's hard to imagine how up to 2,000 people would be crammed into a single one. As the tour goes on, I notice that some of the kids seem bored. 
a group of boys are kind of shoving each other and goofing around. But then we arrive at the crematorium, where the Nazis incinerated the bodies of prisoners. Tour guide Frederik Hegela points to a photo hanging on a wall outside of the crematorium. It's a picture of a pile of dead bodies, naked and emaciated. Everyone becomes very quiet, including the boys who had been playing around earlier. Their faces fall as Hegela explains that this is what American troops found here, on this very ground, when they liberated the camp in 1945. One student seems particularly emotional over the photo. She hangs back as the others go inside the crematorium. Another student walks over and takes her hand. They stay there for a moment, together, and then, still holding hands, walk into the crematorium. It just so happens that today, the day that I'm visiting Dachau, is Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year in Judaism, and known as the Day of Atonement. Many Jews spend the day fasting. The holiday involves reflecting on the wrongs from the past year and committing to do better. The tour ends after the crematorium, and I asked several students about their impressions. Well, my name is Eleanor Anderson. I'm 15. Hello, my name is Smet Ulutuk, and I'm 14 years old. Anderson and Olatek say it's been an unsettling visit to Dachau, but a necessary one. And I think it's important because this is our history, and I think we have more of a connection if we come personally and go to the rooms and stuff, so I think it's a personal thing. I agree as well. We just have to look at back at the mistakes that our country has made, and just we have to face them and hope that something like this really never happens again. Does it make y'all feel uncomfortable having to, to, I mean, there was that one photo that was really upsetting to look at. Well, I think it is a bit uncomfortable to see that these people have actually lay there dead and we were standing on that ground. So I think it is a bit uncomfortable, but it's still a history. So I think it's, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's okay. So if you could say your first and last name and your title, please. My name is um, Werner Kark. Kark heads the unit that oversees Holocaust curriculum in the Bavarian Department of Education and Culture. And this unit is responsible for remembrance culture, for international relations, and for a struggle against extremism. Remembrance culture is this notion of acknowledging and talking about the past, hold it in the present, a way of saying it's important that society never forgets. Kark says discomfort for students can be a good thing. Perhaps feeling uncomfortable is the basis for education, because when you feel uncomfortable, you, you, you know personally about the problem, and then you can go forward. Part of going forward is understanding how the past affects the present. The grandparents, they were guilty. And they did things which are not part of the humanity. And they have to know that Germans are responsible for this. And they are part of Germany. And therefore, the history of the Holocaust is the main condition of our democracy. Germany's model is far from perfect. Many Germans will tell you that. Some say teachers don't get enough training on how to dispel stereotypes that there's not enough discussion of modern-day Jewish life. On the other hand, 
There are far-right German politicians who say there's too much talk about the Holocaust in schools. And others point to German atrocities committed in Africa, a story which is still largely absent from history lessons. But overall, there is broad acknowledgement in Germany that the Holocaust was a crime against humanity that the nation must continue to reckon with. Meanwhile, in the United States, recent high-profile police killings of Black people have sparked widespread discussion over the role of racism in shaping this democracy. Those ideas are making their way into the classroom. Social studies lessons now ask students to think about why Juneteenth might be more meaningful to some people than the 4th of July, or why many people wouldn't want to celebrate Columbus Day. Some teachers ask students to think about which slogans from the anti-lynching protest of the 1920s are still relevant today. Here's Jess Clark. Under the legislation being pushed in Kentucky and other states, those ideas could put teachers on thin ice. Here's Kumar Rashad, who teaches math and social studies at Breckenridge Metropolitan High School in Louisville. There are teachers who would be, you know, would basically would tie their hands behind their back as far as what they could actually say, because there's no way to teach the history of America without teaching the history of the race. Carter G. Woodson said that back in 1900. Carter G. Woodson was a historian. He's known as the father of Black History Month. The history of America is the history of racial relationships. And if we don't deal with the history of the racial relationships, our country is doomed. The tension between educators like Kumar Rashad and Republican politicians pushing these bills comes down to two fundamental questions. What's the purpose of public education? And why do we teach history? We've been listening to WFPL's audio documentary, A Critical Moment. In this next episode of their documentary, reporters Stephanie Wolf and Jess Clark look at how critical race theory has been causing a lot of angst in Kentucky school communities. Let's talk about something you've probably heard a lot about recently, an ideology conservatives say is sweeping the nation. Critical race theory. Critical race theory. Schools are now radicalizing our kids. I mean, what you're watching is the death of our future as a country. Critical race theory. It's an academic framework that emerged in the late 1970s in law schools. But lately, conservatives are using critical race theory, or CRT, as a stand-in term for anti-racist efforts in workplaces and schools. This controversy exploded at school board meetings throughout 2021, and it was the topic of a forum Jess went to in Louisville's East End. On an evening in July, Louisville Tea Party President Teresa Camoriano greets me in the lobby of the Louisville Marriott East. Be nice to us. (laughs) Camoriano's group is hosting a forum tonight, supposedly on critical race theory, The Tea Party organized the event along with a very new conservative group, No Left Turn Kentucky. It's a state chapter of a national group that sprung up in 2020 to oppose anti-racist efforts in public schools. They also oppose curriculum that includes LGBTQ perspectives. We walk past the swanky hotel bar to the event room. Beanie Gohagen leads the Kentucky chapter of the group. I just want to thank you all for coming this evening. It is encouraging to see so many people gathered here together who are concerned about our children, their education, their future, and truly the future of our country. Gohagen is speaking in front of about 100 people. There aren't enough chairs. Some people are leaning against the back wall. Stacks of handouts on a table invite people to join a right-wing group on the messaging app Telegram. 
There's an advertisement for a class on something called biblical citizenship and a guide on how to file complaints about school curriculum. The audience at this forum looks mostly white. There's only a handful of people of color, and two of them are the featured speakers. Delvin Azofaifa is a social studies teacher in Lexington. He's Black, and he's an outspoken critic of critical race theory, or at least his interpretation of it. It would suggest that the United States of America today is systemically racist. So let me ask you all this in this fine crowd. It doesn't make sense to me if the United States is systemically racist, but all these white people came here to see two black people. Ideas like the ones being shared at this forum may seem extreme, but they're making their way into everyday conservative media and politics. Republican Glenn Youngkin won the governor's race in Virginia, campaigning against so-called critical race theory in schools. Azo Fifa also has political aspirations. He ran unsuccessfully for Frankfurt City Commissioner in 2018. Critical race theory and critical race theory adjacent dogma tells students how to think. It tells white kids how to think about being oppressors over slaves they never owned. It teaches black people to be victims over circumstances they were never harmed by. While Azofaifa is being presented here as an expert on critical race theory, he's not. The talking points he's using are the same talking points making their rounds across the country. Talking points that have their origin with conservative activist and writer Christopher Rufo. Conservatives need to wake up that this is an existential threat to the United States and the bureaucracy, even under the Trump administration, is now being weaponized against core traditional American values. That's Rufo on Fox News in September of 2020. And in this interview, Rufo redefined critical race theory for a new audience under very different terms than its scholars understand it. He claimed all these anti-racist and implicit bias trainings, these were all part of a theoretical legal framework that developed in the 1970s called critical race theory, or CRT. And CRT wanted the end of America, according to Rufo. From this interview, the moral panic spread like wildfire to then-President Donald Trump. In September, the Trump administration ordered federal agencies to stop offering employees certain diversity training on racial and gender biases. To state legislatures, to school boards. That's where parents and conservative activists have accused educators across the country, including in Jefferson County Public Schools in Louisville, of using anti-racist initiatives to divide and indoctrinate children. CRT is Marxism, the oppressed and the oppressor. How dare JCPS do this evil to our children? We're not even talking about anti-critical race theory. I think critical race theory is a term that has been loaded up to mean anything about white grievance. That's Cedric Powell, law professor at the University of Louisville. Powell's been teaching about critical race theory for years, long before Christopher Rufo plucked the term from academic obscurity. A note for transparency, Powell is also on the board of directors of Louisville Public Media, which WFPL is a part of. I ask him to explain as succinctly as possible what critical race theory is. What critical race theorists are trying to explore is how uh, inequality is perpetuated through systems and practices and laws that impact people of color. 
The key piece here is that racism is not just about personal prejudice. It's perpetuated through systems. He gives a few examples. The legacy of slavery, or today's restrictive voting laws, like requiring an ID or limiting polling hours and locations. Critical race theory doesn't just apply to the Black experience. Laws and legal structures have been created to discriminate against other people based on race, like immigration restrictions. Powell says conservative activists aren't using the term in good faith. Critical race theory isn't even taught in most K-12 schools. It's a graduate-level theory. This isn't really about critical race theory. This is about something else. It is about control and who gets to control and who gets included and who gets excluded. So I think the real desperation comes from people seeing that we have a diverse populace now. There's certainly a shift in terms of moving from a white majority to a multicultural majority in the United States. And I think that it makes uh, people nervous. It really does. And so you see that in the type of extremism that we have now. So what are the characteristics of the latest communist effort to conquer the world? Back at the forum, another speaker, Irina Baptiste, is at the front of the room clicking through a PowerPoint presentation. She claims critical race theory is a Marxist pro-LGBTQ plot to take over not just the United States, but the world. She reads a list of words that supposedly signal someone's support for this communist takeover. Social justice, diversity and inclusion, empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti- In many ways, the talk she's giving is like a buffet of conservative themes— The critical race theorists aren't just a threat to the American capitalist way of life, but also to gun rights, to Christianity, and to manhood. At the end, they allow questions. And the first person to speak up is Kumar Rashad. Yes, sir. Yeah, I got uh, one one question. uh, You'll remember Rashad is a social studies and math teacher at Breckenridge Metropolitan High School in Louisville. He's worried that legislation which purports to target critical race theory will, in effect, censor teachers from speaking on racism at all. He wants to know the speaker's sources, and he points out some flaws in their explanations of critical race theory. The speakers do not back down. And finally, Rashad stands up. You get the sense he's just had it. I'm judged every day because I'm black. I'm judged because I'm Rashad keeps going, trying to explain redlining, a system that denied and continues to deny loans to would-be black homeowners. Beanie Gohagen, the organizer, asks him to leave, and he does, but not quietly. We're going to ask you to leave. I'm going to leave because I reconnect with Rashad a couple months later in his backyard. He's playing fetch with a very energetic terrier. That's Jack Jack. Jack Jack. Yeah. And I ask him what was going through his mind during that forum. He sums it up with just a couple words. This is bullshit. And uh, it was. Rashad says he talked with some of the featured speakers during the event and was confounded by their logic. He says they don't have a real understanding of what critical race theory is or the issues at play. So one thing I was thinking about when I was there is the fact that both of the speakers were people of color. Exactly. Um, That's the worst part. They always want to put... Uh, black folks against each other. So it wasn't a surprise that they actually used uh, black folks to do that. But it doesn't make it less hurtful when you're there. For Rashad, the stakes are high. 
not just for him, but for his students. Many schools are starting to bolster their curriculums with black and brown perspectives that have historically been left out. Rashad worries this movement on the right could rob kids of the chance to learn a full and accurate picture of American history. Now we're talking about uh, educating black children and giving them what they need in order to succeed, and you want to put a stop on that. The thing is, we've been here before, many times. It is a lot of um, 80-year-old deja vu reading the headlines today. That's Adam Latz, a historian at Binghamton University in New York. He studies the history of conservative activism in American public education. And Latz says what we're seeing in this forum and in communities across the country is an old playbook of the right. It goes back at least to the 1930s, when a white dad named O.K. Armstrong objected to his child's textbook. The textbook was published by Harold Rugg. He had a whole series— And the rug books were pretty progressive, but they weren't controversial. In fact, they were really popular, sold in the millions, until Armstrong had a look at what his kid was reading in history class. And he was outraged by the um, anti-American, pro, in that that era, pro-Soviet. They didn't say anti-white, but they certainly meant it. One book, for example, asked students to consider if the United States really was a land of opportunity for everyone— Rugg's opponents claimed the question was communist propaganda. Armstrong's concerns with the Rugg textbooks got picked up by conservatives nationally. Conservative parents came to school board meetings across the country to demand the books be banned. In some towns, they even burned piles of them. Just like CRT opponents today have lists of words they take issue with, anti-Rugg activists circulated their own lists. The phrase they used was weasel words. Um, You know, words that if you just looked at them, you'd say, okay, that's just about American society. But once you understand the lens that that they were, these conservative activists were reading, they were secret signs to subvert the patriotism um, and the pro-American ardor of American youth. The conservative activists succeeded. Schools started pulling the books from classrooms, not always because they agreed with the activists, but because they wanted to avoid the controversy. Latt says these conflicts come up again and again, and at times they've escalated to violence. He says the conflicts often happen when white conservatives are afraid. For example, back in the 40s, Latt says people opposed to the rug textbooks were really terrified. With war looming, uh, an active war happening by the 40s, there was a lot of worry that if young people read that America had problems, they would no longer be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to engage in a, you know, a war for the country. World War II, a war that America and its allies eventually won. After the war ended, America still didn't want to talk about its own problems. But the American government did want Germany to talk about theirs. We've been listening to an audio documentary called A Critical Moment. It was reported and produced by WFPL arts reporter Stephanie Wolf and education reporter Jess Clark. On our website, you can find a link to all the episodes. That's at wvpublic.org. After the break, we hear about another debate over what's taught in schools. This one about books. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. We've been talking about how race is being taught in schools across Appalachia. The question is spilling into debates over what books are included in public school curricula, or even in school libraries. This issue has been front and center in Tennessee. Maybe you saw the viral story about a school board removing a Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel about the Holocaust. I wanted to learn more, so I reached out to Blaze Ganey, who covers the state capitol in Nashville for WPLN. I started by asking him about the case of Mouse by Art Spiegelman. So you're talking about McMinn County School Board. Earlier this year, they voted to remove a graphic novel about the Holocaust from its eighth grade curriculum. That book is called Mouse. Um, it's it, it's won awards. It has been taught for years. But parents are saying that it has a nude image in the book and that it shouldn't be taught to eighth graders. And eighth graders shouldn't be essentially subjected to seeing that type of, um, you know, nudity and that it, it, it isn't proper. It's interesting we're talking about nudity in a book where Jewish people are depicted as, as mice and Nazis as cats and, you know, the allies as, as dogs. I, you know, book battles are, are something we're seeing here in Virginia, too. The governor ran an ad targeting specifically Toni Morrison's beloved um, here in Virginia. In Tennessee, what's it looking like in the Capitol? What what types of actions are lawmakers taking with regard to concerns about books and school libraries? So there there have been a lot of attacks on books in school libraries uh, so far this session. Um, none have actually been sent to the governor yet, but are still making its way through committees. One One of the ones that is highly debated and talked about a lot is one that enacts the Age Appropriateness Materials Act of 2022. Essentially, it would allow for a process for where parents can go through curriculums and also check and see whether or not a book is age appropriate. It also sets up in the local um, school board a process for books to come into the um, libraries to make sure that they are age appropriate. A, A lot of people have brought up specific books um, that they believe are in libraries across the states. And one of the books that they've continued to bring up is Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Now, the House Speaker, Cameron Sexton, brought up the book saying that, you know, he challenged reporters to read the book because it it has some words in there that many people may not want uh, their kids reading. Um, And a a quick review on commonsense.com, which rates books shows that it's it's for kids 14 and older but they're saying that the book is in you know some fifth grade some elementary schools and some people see that as an issue while others say you know the libraries are set up in a way that books for young adults will be in a specific section and that the problem is essentially already handled if these laws take effect what changes can folks expect to see in the schools if this law passes, you, you'll probably see groups like Moms for Liberty 
coming and fouling things at school to say, hey, we want this list of books removed. There's already a, a ongoing list online of particular books that have been found to have pornographic or obscene material in them. The worry from people against the bill is that it could cross the line. I mean, there's been uh, Moms for Liberty here in Davidson County, uh, where Nashville is located, they've tried to have a Martin Luther King March on Washington removed because of images of real life things that happened where children, or I believe it was teenagers, being sprayed with fire hoses. You know, that is just something that happened in history, but they, they believe that it is too graphic for people to see and want it removed from schools. You mentioned Moms for Liberty as sort of a, a driving group in this. Are there other patterns discernible in books that they've chosen to, to target in schools? A, a Texas Republican sent a letter to the Texas Education Agency asking if there were any schools that have books listed on a 16-page spreadsheet. It, it contains uh, over 800 books, and a lot of people believe that that list is what people are going off of to try and get those books banned. What kinds of books are on that list? So the, the types of books that are on that list are race and policing in modern America, racial justice in America, topics for change, uh, the girls I've been, what is the Black Lives Matter movement, cemetery boys, uh, hot dog girl. Now, I, I've never read these books, but a, a couple of them just sound like they're talking about Black history. There's even one that says the fight for LGBTQ rights. You know, it doesn't seem to just be about nudity or profane language. Uh, it seems to also be about issues that make people possibly feel uncomfortable um, and issues that maybe people just don't want to accept. Yeah. What What do critics say about that? Because, like, I can see an argument with Mouse that, OK, maybe a nude scene, but I can also see that playing into Holocaust denial narratives and the idea of removing that book, which is in, which encourages empathy with victims to the Holocaust. What, what do critics say about the patterns of books that are being banned? Well, critics, librarians, uh, school teachers, professors, nobody really that is in the education system is for having books that, like you said, make people feel empathy about a certain race removed. They understand that uh, it is lessons that must be taught from these books. Things like racial justice in America there's even one uh, called 2020 Black Lives Matter Marches, which a lot of these kids probably lived through and saw on social media or on the news. A lot of these books that I've mentioned cover the inclusion of a race or the inclusion of a sector of our community as far as LGBTQs. Yesterday, there was a bill hearing here that would prevent any curriculum textbooks being in schools in Tennessee that mentions LGBTQ. The bill sponsor of that bill is saying that his constituents have come to him and believe that the teaching of LGBTQ in schools and the normalizing of it is actually promoting and even indoctrinating kids into the LGBTQ community. Opponents of that call it absurd. I even had one guy say, uh, a, a gay man that is with the Equality Tennessee say, you know, I've been reading books on straight people all my life, and I'm still gay, so I don't see how reading indoctrinates anyone. Now, it was obviously a, a little joke, but he has a point there. 
That was reporter Blaze Ganey, who covers Tennessee state government for WPLN. One lesson I gleaned from today's stories is that we have to keep learning. To me, that means keeping an open mind, seeking out new perspectives, and searching for the truth, no matter how uncomfortable it is. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by West Swing, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Verbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. This episode was produced with assistance from Eileen LeBlanc and the Public Media Journalist Association Editor Corps. Funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a private corporation funded by the American people. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit our show page at WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia. There, you can subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.